grab your Bibles, go to Philippians chapter 3. And we're just going to kind of jump into the thick of Philippians this morning. We've had the opportunity as we're preparing to, to plant this church, our uh, kind of our uh, planting or our sending church in North Lincoln, sending us to plant this church in South Lincoln. And Lincoln is a, a town that's just growing by leaps and bounds in pretty much every direction. And so we've been kind of purposeful over the, the course of the last year. Uh, we started out in the book of Acts and, and kind of talked about the, the formation of uh, the church in Philippi and, and, and Paul and his work there in planting that church. And then we jumped into the book of Philippians and say, let's, let's see what this looks like. If you do this and you do it well and if people are faithful. And so this morning I just want to grab the end of chapter 3 with you, verses 17 to 21. And I just follow along with me as I go here. <clears throat> Brethren. Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven. From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. Now there's a lot here for us this morning in these verses. You could, you could kind of take off on all sorts of different topics, all sorts of different things that, that we can touch on this morning. One of the things we want to make sure we do is we want to make sure that we connect our passage uh, to the rest of the book, right, and, and to what has come before. We want to make sure that we maintain the overall theme, and you guys know the importance of context. Your pastor has, has taught you that well, and so think about kind of the, the flow and what has brought us to this point. In fact, when, when Paul says in verse 17 to imitate him, what's he talking about? Well, we look back to verses 15 and 16, and, and we see those those words, that commendation of pressing forward, right? These are, <clears throat> this is the idea from the Greek of, of a runner, right? A, a foot racer. And so think of the image of a runner who is, who is pressing forward towards the goal, towards the finish line, maybe even stretching out, you know, or, or, or pushing his head forward to be the first. <clears throat> In fact, I, I saw a couple of weeks ago a video. It was kind of three guys vying for first place, and then, and then two of them surged ahead, and they were neck and neck. I mean, it was, you know, who is going to win this race? And at the very end, right before the finish line, one of them just launched himself. He just dove and flew through the air and came crashing to the ground and then jumped up and raised his arms, <laughs> excited to have won. I thought he'd probably need to go get in the ambulance, but he was excited to have won, and, and, and it was worth it to him to, to take that risk or to do that. And so just the idea here of Paul having the daily goal that he sets for himself of, of pressing forward, pressing on, not falling behind, not lagging back, but rather every day experiencing Christ's resurrection life, bringing vitality, bringing power to Paul's present life, right? So rather than slowing down, rather than taking it easy, Paul's been a believer for a long time now. He's done a lot of work. He's put a lot of effort in. He's accomplished a lot for the kingdom. And so now maybe he, he wants to just rest. No, Paul is continuing to push forward. 
with all of his effort, pushing forward even harder than ever before so that he can finish well, so that he can finish in a strong way, knowing that he's given his very best to the very end of his life. Again, look in verse 15. You you see where Paul tells us to, to think in this way, to follow the pattern that he was following. And really, we're being invited here in this section in in chapter 3, we're being invited into a deepening personal relationship with Christ, to to growing a dynamic righteousness, to an experience of power that can transform us and our lives. And so this is an incredible goal for us to adopt, to say, let's be like Paul. Let's follow Paul as Paul followed Christ. And so verse 16 says, However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have have attained. And Paul's calling us to live what we know is true. Live what we say we believe. To know Christ and to grow in Christ. So that it's not just about knowledge, but it's about what do we do with that knowledge. How do we live that knowledge out? How do we act upon it? As I was preparing this this section, I, I came across an interesting quote Uh, Someone I probably don't normally quote, Kierkegaard. But Kierkegaard said this, Today's Christianity is a matter of being elevated for an hour once a week, just as in the theater. He's he's comparing, I guess in his day, the the modern church with going to the movies. He says it's kind of similar. You go and you watch the show and you leave. He says it is... Yeah, it is now used to hearing everything without having the remotest notion of doing something. And so his critique, his, his complaint against the churches of his day was people come and they spectate and they listen and they leave, but they don't do anything with it. They, 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 they leave unchanged, right? Well, can you imagine coming to church? You kind of open your head, right? The pastor scoops in a little bit of knowledge. You close your head. You say, thank you, sir. And you go about your week. But you're unchanged. There's there's nothing different. It doesn't impact your life. And we're thankful for pastors, for preachers who are faithful, not only to exposit the scripture, but also to help us to make application. And and by the power of the indwelling spirit, we make application. We do what I've called in in all of my years of, of youth ministry, I've called shoe leather. Somebody taught me this very early on, that that when you hear a great message, when when someone takes you deep into the word of God, then it's your job to put some shoe leather on it. That is, when I go out the door, how do I walk this out? How do I live this out? Tomorrow morning when I wake up, what difference does this make? Right? And, And just to make practical application. And so this is exactly what Paul is encouraging and exhorting us to. And Paul says to follow his example, not because... Paul has it all figured out, or Paul is perfect. In fact, we know that that's not what Paul's saying, right? This is not Paul promoting Paul, because you can look up in verse 12, right? And Paul just said in verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Paul has been justified by faith, and now he lives his life by faith faith and he he presses on in sanctification until the day in which his earthly struggle will be over and Christ will complete the work by glorifying him so until the day when Christ completes his sanctification when Christ glorifies him ultimately Paul's going to press on he's going to continue on and and, and this theme of being an example is a big one here for us And, and I just encourage you to 
to really consider this and examine this as we think about the idea of putting some, some shoe leather on it. <clears throat> we know, first of all, that Christ is our ultimate example, of course. And listen, Christians love, uh, Christians love acronyms. Did you know this? Christians love acronyms. They love any kind of good gimmick. They love anything that you can put on a bracelet, uh, shoelaces, lunchboxes, T-shirts, any of that kind of stuff. And there was one a few years ago, okay, maybe more than a few years ago now, right? This is, a, this is a big trend. They put it on everything, but this is one that I actually like. And it is WW what? JD. What would Jesus do? Following Jesus' example, this is biblical. In fact, we could, we could probably say, what did Jesus do? Because we know what Jesus did, because we have the record of it in Scripture. And so to, to consider for ourselves as we're going through our life, as we're setting the course of our life, what would Christ do, right? John chapter 13, Christ tells us to follow his example in service. And back in Philippians chapter 2, we're told to follow the example of Christ in humility. Ephesians chapter 5 says to walk in love as Christ loved you. So in all of these things, in all of these areas, we can follow the example of Christ, and we have that for us. And in addition... Scripture records Christ's example for us in suffering and forgiveness and discipleship and in his teaching and his prayer and his example and and teaching on prayer and so much more. So following the example of Christ in in every area of our Christian life, every area of our walk, that's, that's the goal for us. And then we know that Paul mentions following his example several times here. He does it here in chapter 3. He does it again in chapter 4. So he's telling us to follow, Paul is telling us to follow Paul's example, but even then, Christ's example is at the forefront. So 1 Corinthians 1, follow my example, Paul says, but then he says this, as I follow the example of Christ. Philippians chapter 3, observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. Philippians 3.17, so it's, it's this idea of, of watch for those who are watching Christ. Look for those who are looking to Christ. Follow those who are following Christ. And in this way, we have example after example after example, and it's handed down generation to generation to generation. And so as you look to follow and to model faithful, godly men and women as they are following Christ. And what an incredible blessing, what an incredible goal that, that uh, we can be that for others, but also that we can be seeking others who can be examples to us. Keep your eyes on them, it says. That's not to say just Paul, but other brothers who can serve as examples as well, here in verse 17. Remember in chapter 2, if you look back to Philippians 2, you'd see that Paul has already mentioned the faithfulness of Timothy and the faithfulness of Epaphroditus. So he has a couple of clear examples in mind. These are the, these are the men, the kind of men that you can be following. Uh, flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll look at a couple of verses, a couple other examples here. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. <clears throat> Paul tells the pastor of the church at Ephesus, tells Timothy, be an example And look in all of these ways that he can be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. 
And he says similar things to other groups in the church as well. Tells young men to, even to be an example. Titus chapter 2, he tells Titus, In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. James chapter 5, he even tells us that the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, are an example to us in their suffering and their patience. And so scripture is filled with examples, in addition to the example of Christ. Every week as we're studying and preparing our sermons in the, the, the church that I'm on staff at right now, that's our, our sending church for the church plant, one of the things that we do at staff meeting that, that's unique, uh, I've, I've never done this anywhere else, is we gather and we go through the passage that one of us will be preaching that week. And so we have the opportunity to talk through the passage, to hear what the other guys have to say, their insights, their questions, illustrations. Uh, and then I like to say, we, we talk about that, and then I steal all their good ideas and I preach them, right? <laughs> I never give them credit. I just, you know, take their ideas. But as we were talking through this passage, I just asked them, I said, guys, thinking of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and, and following the example of Christ, but also being able to tell others to follow your example. I said, give me some feedback on this. Like, tell me, like, who, who has been that for you? And it was such a joy to hear these men talk about other men and talk about the impact that others have had on them. Our, uh, our pastor of student ministries, who would be my, my son's youth pastor, talked about uh, a man who basically confronted him when he was a teen and took him aside and said, hey, uh, you know, I know what you've been up to and it's not good and it's not right and it's not befitting someone who claims Christ in their life and just kind of exhorted him and, and, and kind of course corrected him. And he said, it's not just what that did for me in that moment, but he said, it's also the fact that now as I've been in ministry, he's been in ministry now almost probably 30 years, he said, that set a pattern for me in my ministry as well. Because of the difference that that made for me, now, now I've had the opportunity over all these years and still having the opportunity to come alongside young men, to put my arm around them, and to exhort them with the scriptures the way that man did for me. Right? And that's exactly the pattern, the example that we want to see set. And I appreciate that even more because I still have two sons, two teenage sons in the home, and he's their youth pastor. So I said, yeah, do that with my, do, take, put your arm around my sons, right? Do a little exhorting with them. I'm, I don't like to be the only one doing it. So that's, that's huge. Uh, one of our pastors encouraged us, uh, he, he said, we just need to encourage our people to read biographies. Read biographies of faithful Christian men and women and, and, and be able to kind of just soak up that example of life. Another one spoke of the, the faithfulness of his father, and all of the things that he learned from his father. And really the idea that he, he thinks that, that at the time he didn't even realize how much he was getting from his dad, right? Just his example of life, an example of hard work. And, and this is one of the things that I think I, maybe I harp on or, or hammer home the most in our men's ministry and our discipleship with men, is this idea of being an example, and so we, here we have it in our text, and I just want to encourage us as men, fathers, seek to be this for your children. Let them see your example of love and hard work and faithfulness to their mother and faithfulness to the Lord and to the church. And let them have a man of integrity to emulate, to follow. And remember, as we talk about this idea, not only of, of having examples to follow, but of being an example to others... Luke chapter 6, verse 40 says, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. 
That can be a weighty thing to consider as we serve in the church and others are, are watching. Uh, as, as we serve in the home as fathers and mothers to think our children will grow up and will follow our example. So think about this morning, maybe even talk over lunch, who has served as an example to you in your Christian life? Who have you sought to model yourself after? And when we think of examples to follow, we're not looking for perfect Christian men and women because those don't exist, right? We're just looking for those who are faithful, those who we can follow. And I'm so thankful that your pastor has been one of those people for me and continues to be one of my go-to guys that I can call or email with questions or just to get his, his thoughts or, or to hash things out with someone who has a little bit more time in the pulpit and a little bit more wisdom than I do. Okay, a lot more wisdom than I do. So thankful for, uh, not just for Mike, but for so many godly men and women like that over the years. All right, look at verses 18 and 19 here then. Philippians 3 <clears throat> says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Well, here, our ears perk up a little bit because Paul is emotional about this. I mean, what is it that moves the Apostle Paul to tears? Do you think of Paul as a real, you know, kind of a, just a softy, just a big crybaby? I mean, certainly when I think of Paul, I think of this like strong, dynamic, bold personality, right? And yet here's something that has Paul to, to tears. Concern for the flock, grief over the judgment of these false teachers who it seems maybe have been professing believers at one point, people even that he knows, it could be those things. But I think primarily what has Paul so emotional, what has Paul so worked up, what has Paul even in tears, is Paul's passion for the purity of the gospel. A gospel that actually can lead people to salvation. And Paul speaks, we, we know this about Paul, he speaks strongly, harshly at times, emotionally, against anything that would corrupt the gospel by adding the works of men to it. Flip over to Acts chapter 20. Look at verses 28 and 29 of Acts 20. Paul says here, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Here we see the level of Paul's investment. He's saying, for, for years, I'm warning you of this. I'm telling you about this. I'm admonishing you of this. To the point of tears, I'm desperate for you to be protected. I'm desperate for you to maintain and to hold fast to a pure gospel. Without error, without mixture. This makes me think about 
I mean, isn't it interesting? Here we have these really first and second generation churches that we're reading about in the New Testament, and already false teaching is there. Even from within the church, false, false teaching is arising, and, and the gospel is being corrupted. And that's exactly what Satan is desperate to do. I mean, feel free to, to keep part of the true gospel and just add a little bit of error to it, right? It's kind of like the idea of, uh, you know, I give you a nice warm glass of milk, big, big, tall glass of milk, just one little drop of poison. Are you going to drink that milk? No, you say that the little tiny drop of poison has poisoned the entire glass of milk. It, it permeates the entire thing. And so it is when we add anything to the gospel. And so we need constant warnings, and we see it throughout the scriptures. Uh, I read a story a while back of a seminary professor, and he's teaching a New Testament semester-long survey of the New Testament. And he told his students, this semester you are going to be involved in a major project together as a class, along with me as your professor. And what we're going to do is we are going to catalog every, essentially every topic as we go through the New Testament. And as we catalog everything topically, what we're going to do by the end of the semester is we're going to figure out what is the thing that is spoken of the most in the New Testament. What is kind of like the, the big topic that, that comes to the forefront? And of course, he allowed the students to give some guesses, and they said, oh, it'll be love, it'll be unity, you know, it'll be something warm and fuzzy and beautiful. And what they found out as they went and, and, and looked at all of these different areas, they were amazed to see that the warning against false doctrine is emphasized more than anything else. Jesus warns from the very beginning, Matthew chapter 7, he warns about false teachers. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are what? Ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? He says, just watch. Just watch them. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. Just watch them. Look at what they do. Listen to what they say. It'll become apparent. Matthew 24, he says, many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Second Peter even, uh, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will, listen, secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow in their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. These are people who, who not only try to attack and destroy and, and, and twist the gospel, but by infiltrating the church and, and, and being a part of the church and by, by their own sinfulness and their own lifestyle, they bring ill repute against the church. They damage the testimony of the church because not only is their doctrine not faithful, but their lifestyle isn't either. Turn over to Jude 3 and 4. says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. 
Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So the fact that we see these warnings over and over again, the fact that such strong language is used in these warnings, these notes of condemnation against these false teachers, it just tells us, guys, this is, this is a big deal. And, and please understand, in, in Philippians 3, Paul is not talking about teachers who differ on minor issues. Paul is talking about false teachers who deny the supremacy of the cross and the doctrines of grace. This is a gospel issue. And so Paul uses that kind of language. He declares these men to be enemies of the cross of Christ. These really are the the false teachers uh, that are called Judaizers, constantly causing trouble for Paul. They're contradicting Paul's teaching. They have this kind of strange brand of Christianity, maybe I should use air quotes, right? It's basically this blend of Christianity and Jewish tradition. One commentator said, Judaism was the cradle of Christianity. Christianity is birthed out of Judaism. He says, Judaism was the cradle of Christianity and very nearly its grave. But God raised up Paul as the Moses of the Christian church to deliver believers from bondage. Paul is making sure that we understand that salvation is by grace alone. And so the Judaizers are challenging his authority as a teacher. They're confusing the church. And Paul wants to make sure that his church remains vigilant, that the Philippians remain vigilant and faithful, that they are preaching and only allowing the preaching of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. We know how clearly, how concisely This view of salvation is stated in Ephesians 2, 8-10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. No works added. And this is exactly what happened. If you remember in Acts chapter 15, where we have the Jerusalem council and all of these things, it says some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. But we know that the result of the Jerusalem council was that the apostles rejected that. They rejected that as a corrupt gospel, as a corrupt view of works-based salvation. And guess what? We still have this problem today. You think it would have been settled at that point, right? And nobody ever would would say any such thing again. And yet, even today, we have the problem of legalism and and false works-based systems of salvation. Reynolds Shower says, Today there is a dangerous tendency to sacrifice and compromise God's truth for the sake of unity. For example, for the sake of unity with people who do not hold to the true gospel necessary for salvation, some have gone so far as to say that those people are to be regarded as true Christians, and no attempt should be made to evangelize them. This tendency stands in stark contrast with the example of Christ, who refused to sacrifice God's truth for the sake of unity with the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
and Paul, who would not compromise the true gospel for the sake of unity with the Judaizers. Dr. Showers is saying, we don't compromise, we don't make friends with those who promote a false gospel. We're not looking for unity. In fact, we're, we're looking to stand, as Paul did, to stand against false gospel or any mixture. It's interesting, <clears throat> when we think of this idea of a works-based salvation, when we think of the idea of uh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, we think of the Protestant Reformation. And the Catholic Church has pronounced anathema, on all those who would say that justification is by faith alone. And yet here in this passage, we see that the, the destruction, the anathema, really is specifically applied to those who would teach a false gospel of works. So Paul is saying exactly the opposite here in Philippians 3. But I think the, about the importance of the purity and the clarity of the gospel and the importance of maintaining a pure, clear gospel. I think about my time on, on the railroad. I was at uh, Burlington Northern Railroad, worked at the railroad in Kansas City for about a, a decade until my uh, habit of teaching the Bible was overtaking my job and something had to give, right? So we're, we've been in full-time ministry now for a long time, but uh, for a while we were just kind of moving trains around and I just kind of thought that was my mission field. And uh, one of the things I used to always joke about at the railroad is that uh, because of the dangers inherent in working around heavy machinery and huge trains and all these things, I would always kind of joke, we just take turns every night saving each other's lives. And I always tell the story of working on a track with my back to another track, and I just heard on the radio ever so faintly, someone just said the words, behind you. That was it, just behind you. I heard those words, I just took a step forward, and a train came flying behind me, I was way too close to the track, and literally, if I hadn't just had those two simple words of warning, I probably would have been, you know, smushed that day. And it makes me think of a, a story that I heard in my time on the railroad of, uh, from, from kind of railroad history, and it's a story of a, a terrible wreck that took place with dreadful cost of life. There was a train actually loaded with young people, uh, a passenger train returning from school, and it stalled on the track because of what at that time was called a hot box. It had basically overheated, and, and so they had to stop. And so because they're stalled on the track, and they knew that the Limited was coming through soon, a, a hot priority, high priority, fast train that was going to come flying down that track, and so they sent a flagman back far behind their train to warn the Limited to stop because there was an obstruction of this passenger train on the track. But even with the flagman there, the limited, the, the, the whistle from the limited was heard by the students and the, the passengers on the train as it came flying through and crashed into the local with horrible effect. And the engineer of the, the limited that, that came flying down the tracks and crashed into this train managed to jump at the last moment from his own train and save his life. And so he was hauled into court a few days later to give account for this calamity and his part in it. And the man who was questioning asked him, did you not see the flagman warning you to stop? And he said, I saw him, but he waved a yellow flag. I took it for granted that everything was fine. I, I slowed down a bit, and I kept on my way. So, of course, they bring the flagman to the stand. They said, what flag did you wave? 
He said, I waved a red flag, but he ignored me and went by me like a shot. Both of them insisted that their testimony was true. And they couldn't come to reconciliation. They finally told the flagman, go get the flag. And he went and found the flag and produced it. And when he came to court and produced the flag, everything suddenly became clear. The flag had been red, but it had been exposed to the weather for so long that all the red was faded and bleached out. And it was now just a dirty yellow. Harry Ironside tells this story. And he says, oh, the lives eternally wrecked by the yellow gospels of the day. The bloodless theories of unregenerate men that send their hearers to their doom instead of stopping them on their downward road. When we allow a corrupt gospel, a faded gospel, a gospel that seeks to add any of the works of man or our own works of righteousness to the work of Christ on the cross, we have a false, corrupt, yellow, faded gospel. We must maintain a pure and vibrant gospel. A watered-down gospel is, is not going to do. We need a bright, bold, clear gospel with no mixture of error. And so that's why we say when the gospel is at stake, we don't drop the ball. We don't play nice. Second John 10.11 says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Don't encourage, don't give a pat on the back to someone with a false gospel. Rather, we stand for the truth. Paul is clear that these men he's talking about in Philippians 3 are outside of the body of Christ. They're not true worshipers. In fact, one way to spot a false teacher is to note their self-aggrandizing nature. Right? They, they don't glorify God because they're too busy stealing the glory for themselves. Romans chapter 16 says, Such men are slaves, not of the Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. You can also notice in our passage, it tells us that their end is destruction. Verse 19. Their end is destruction. Galatians 5.10, he says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. He's telling the church, I, I, I'm confident in you. I, I know you're going to stand firm. I know you're going to be faithful. But, but the false teacher among you, the one who is promoting a false gospel, he will stand before God and be judged. This is why James 3 says, Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. It's a serious thing. And so hell will be a place of final doom for Satan, for his demons, but also for false teachers who lead others away from the Lord. They'll not just remain in the grave, by the way, the idea of destruction here, is the idea of eternal destruction, not annihilation, not annihilationism, but it is eternal, perpetual destruction. There's coming a time when the lost will be in their physical, resurrected body to face the pains of eternal punishment. Hell is, uh, the doctrine of hell is a little out of vogue these days. 
uh, doesn't fit will, real well within a, a seeker-friendly model of church. But I think we do well to study the doctrine of hell. It's a great motivator for our own soul to salvation, right? But also, as we think about our neighbors and our friends and our family who don't know Christ, what better motivation is there than to know a little bit about the doctrine of hell? Some of the terms that Scripture uses to describe hell, unquenchable fire, outer darkness, torment, furnace, destruction, a bottomless pit, a lake of fire. But again, probably the most frightening aspect of hell is eternal. And this is the aspect that so many are denying today, despite the clear testimony of Scripture. The Bible is clear. It uses the same word both for eternal life and eternal death. And nowhere does the Bible indicate a second chance. Right After this life comes judgment, and hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. God has designed it for that. One thing we might do well to remember is that hell is not only for false teachers. You don't have to be a, a false teacher. You don't have to be a, a serial killer or, or something of that nature to find yourself in hell. Hell is made up of ordinary sinners who will be separated from God, who remain separated from God. I heard one preacher years ago who said, basically what you have to do to go to hell is nothing. In other words, we're, we're sinners by nature and choice. <laughs> we're, we're already headed there. If you want to be saved from hell, you must come to Christ. You must come to the gospel, to the, to the foot of the cross. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. Because in this passage, we see the seriousness of of knowing about Christ and then rejecting Christ, rejecting the message of the gospel. I think one of my greatest fears in uh, in ministry in all of these years, one of my greatest fears for my own children, for the 25 years of, of youth ministry, for the kids who have sat under me, for a while, I was teaching at our Christian school, and so I would always joke, like, I, I, had, I had kids who were in my Sunday school class, my youth group, my Wednesday night small group, uh, and then they were on, you know, Monday through Friday in theology class with me at school every single day. I'm like, this is a, a dose of Matt McGrew that no one deserves. Like, this is like, this is way too much for any poor child to endure, but to think about the fact that almost every time they heard me, almost every time we were together, they were hearing the gospel, right? And to hear the gospel over and over and over again, like so many who grow up in the church, and to stiff arm God and the message of the gospel, look at what Hebrews 10, 26 to 31 says. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's saying if if you hear the gospel and you reject it, there's no other way. There's no other way to heaven. There's no other way to salvation. It's only the gospel. Verse 27, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and it was regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. 
For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The author author of Hebrew makes a a powerful point. He says, "Let let me give you a scenario. There is a man, right? And this man takes the Son of God and stomps on him. He takes the blood of the covenant, the blood of Christ, and he treats it as something worthless, something filthy. And he takes the spirit of God's grace and he mocks it. He insults it. He throws it back in God's face. And the question that's being asked is, will God judge that man? We see in the verses we just read that he will. In fact, God's response is judgment, it's fury, it's consuming fire, it's vengeance and recompense. And it ends in verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But for those who know Christ, for those who place their faith wholly in him, it is a completely different story. We just, uh, we just had opportunity to go before the youth group in, in our church and, and having our sons in there is fun and, and just share our testimony. They just kind of rotate through the adults in the church and have them come and, and share their testimonies with the youth group. And I, I'm always a little bit, I've always had this thing in the back of my mind, like I was a church kid, I got saved when I was nine, I, I grew up in the church, I don't have one of those, you know, exciting testimonies, right? Tim Hawkins does a little bit, you know, where he says, I wish I was addicted to crack. You know, like, he's, he's, he, like he was missing out. You know, he doesn't have a good story or a good testimony. And yet somewhere over the years, I came to realize, someone told me, there's no such thing as a boring testimony, right? And one of the reasons there's no such thing as a boring testimony is because every testimony is the testimony of someone saved from this wrath of God that we're reading about here. Saved from the flames of an eternal hell. Every story of salvation is a dramatic rescue story. And so whether you had to be kind of dragged through hell in this life a little bit to come to the foot of the cross, or whether God was gracious to you and spared you and you, you know, got saved when you were five years old, either way, it's a dramatic rescue story. Look at Philippians 3, just verses 20 and 21, just with the few minutes we have left here. Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. What I want you to see here is the contrast. What an incredible contrast there is between the eternal destiny of the one who is in Christ and the one who opposes Christ. Paul reminds us that we have a heavenly citizenship. Isn't that a a glorious thing? To wake up every day, to to go through the trials and tribulations and, and hardships of this life, but all with the mindset that you're just passing through. Right? When, when, we're, when we're traveling out of country, like if you, if you go and travel out of country, you, you are a visitor, right? But when you come home, you're a citizen. And, and as a citizen, you have all the rights and privileges and responsibilities of a citizen. And so here we are as heavenly citizens, just traveling. 
Jesus promised those who believe in him that he has gone to heaven to prepare a place for us. And we have this great confidence as God's children that he's going to return and take us to our heavenly home, to the country in which we truly are citizens. John Walver talks about this outlook, this kind of heavenly perspective. He says, the earthly phase of our experience is purely temporary. The goal is to be with the Lord forever. Accordingly, our hope is not simply deliverance from sin in this life or growth in grace and the knowledge of Christ, but our anticipation leaps forward to the day when we will see our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is that great biblical doctrine, that great concept in Scripture of hope. That we have hope because we know our future. We know where we will be if we are in Christ. Paul tells us in verse 21 of a time that's coming when the Lord will transform our humble, lowly body into conformity with the glorious resurrection body of Christ. And when that time comes, when the, the church age saints who are, who are spiritually alive in heaven right now, right? But in this time, they'll receive their resurrected bodies, which are fit for an eternity in the presence of God. And Philippians 3.21 says, this is, what, this is how it reads in the King James, that our vile body may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Does that sound good? Anybody groan a little bit, getting out of bed this morning? Any, you know, little aches and pains, any frustrations? Maybe for some of us, big hardships physically, right? This would be a good verse for someone to text to Mike today <laughs> while he's groaning and pedaling on his bike, right? Don't worry, someday your vile body will be fashioned like unto his glorious body. And, and notice in the verse, this all happens how? Why? By the power of Christ. This is a demonstration of the divine power of Christ. And by his awesome power, we receive an eternal body that will be pain-free, disease-free, and sin-free. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? So now we're living in this busted up, broken down body. We're in a constant battle with our flesh. We're constantly fighting for victory over sin. But when we read Philippians chapter 3... Even in verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, right? That resonates with us. We're like, yeah, Paul, I got you. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I also have not already obtained it, right? I also have not become perfect. We can get tired. We can get discouraged. We, we can just say, I'm, I'm over the struggle. But we got to remember that Paul has begun this chapter and really this entire book has the strain of the, the, the thread of joy, of rejoicing in the Lord, running all through it. And so we've been building to this great cause for rejoicing in verse 21, where Paul reminds us that this day is coming when our struggle will cease and we will stand complete in the presence of God. And so whatever has you beaten down, Paul says, press on. Remember that resurrection is coming. Transformation is promised. Glorification in this passage is as sure as the omnipotence of Jesus Christ himself. Just as sure that Jesus Christ is God and that he has the full power of the Godhead, we can be confident that our resurrection, that our salvation will be completed. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for the opportunity to be in your word together this morning to celebrate, to rejoice. Not only in the gospel and be reminded of the, the importance of the purity of the gospel. A gospel that is by grace alone. A gospel that is free from any mixture of error. But also, Father, to be reminded of what a great salvation we have. That if we are in Christ, we are free. We are delivered from your wrath, from your judgment. And not only that, but you have added to us the incredible blessings of a glorious resurrection body. And we look forward to it. We thank you for your grace and the hope that you lay out for us in your word. Amen.